0: Hello, everyone. This is Cindy Fain.
1: And John Huang.
0: And we have something special and new for you this month.
1: Or someone new, rather. Hoofbeats listeners, meet Dr. Shira Sachs.
2: Hey, what's up, guys?
1: So, Shira, welcome. Can you uh, tell our listeners a little something about yourself?
2: For sure. It's great to be here, John. So I uh, recently moved from Houston, Texas, where I did my residency and a chief year, after which I worked as a hospitalist for a year down at Baylor. And I just moved to New York in July, and I've been a hospitalist at Cornell since then as a part of the Hospital Medicine Fellowship Program there, the Clinical Scholars Program.
1: Well, it's a real privilege to have you here.
0: And Shira actually came to us with a case that we think you will really all enjoy.
2: Yeah, so today we're going to reason through a great case that I saw in wards with my team a couple months ago. It's just a really interesting multi-system disease process, and I really hope you guys enjoy solving it as much as I did.
0: And uh, before Shira gets started, I would like to say thank you to all our listeners for all your support. Now we're going to pass the mic to Shira and announce our early retirement.
1: (laughs) Though uh, as part of our exit clause, I'm going to present Shira's case, but uh, after that, you're in her capable hands. So Shira's patient is a previously healthy 34-year-old man who presents to you with resolved fever and 10 days of headache and myalgias. The story he tells is that ten days ago he experienced twenty-four hours of subjective fever and chills, and subsequently he develops severe pain in his bilateral lower extremities, particularly his calves, but without any weakness or paresthesias. He also experiences a bifrontal throbbing headache over this time period, but without photophobia, nausea, or vomiting. He feels generally fatigued, with a poor appetite and decreased oral intake, He takes ibuprofen, 600mg every 6 hours, and gabapentin, 300mg each night, but these don't seem to bring him any relief. Three days after his symptoms begin, he presents to an outside emergency department, where he's diagnosed with a urinary tract infection and prescribed doxycycline. But he stops taking this after four days, as his symptoms remain unchanged. Of note... He denies that he had any dysuria, urgency, abdominal pain, or flank pain at the time he received this diagnosis. Two days later, he has an episode of epistaxis while blowing his nose, and he presents to the same outside emergency department for further evaluation. And at that point, he's found to have multiple lab abnormalities, which prompts his transfer for further care. In terms of his social history, well, he stays in an apartment in Brooklyn during the week, and he travels to Long Island on the weekends to be with his wife and children. He works as a sanitation worker in New York City. He hasn't traveled outside of New York. He smokes one pack of cigarettes per day and drinks a six-pack of beer on the weekends.
2: Based on the history so far, take a few minutes to organize your thoughts, and we'll meet back up after the break. Welcome back, guys. I sat down with my friend and mentor, Dr. Stephanie Sherman, an academic hospitalist at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Let's hear her
3: initial approach to the case. Really, in the first bit of the story, we see that we have a healthy young adult who's got an acute febrile illness. And in that host, my first concern immediately was an in infectious etiology. Knowing, though, that there's many other categories that can give an acute febrile illness, I think it is important early on to remain open to autoimmunity, malignancy, and also endocrinopathies or systemic drug reactions. The specific symptoms accompanying his fever, the headaches, myalgias, fatigue, anorexia, really seemed pretty nonspecific at this point, could fit with a lot of different acute viral or bacterial conditions. Okay, so far we have a healthy guy
2: with an acute febrile illness and
3: relatively
2: nonspecific symptoms. Overall, this picture is most concerning for an underlying infection. Dr. Sherman quickly turned to the patient's prior contacts with the healthcare system
3: to provide more rich and really diagnostically useful information. And my general approach when I'm not the first clinician to see someone, and when I have data of what those clinicians thought in their earlier evaluations, is that it's really, honestly, incredibly important to step back and not necessarily use the clinicians or interpretations of what was going on, but consider really what primary data they collected to make them come to those decisions. Specifically, when he went to the outside ER about a week before getting hospitalized, they diagnosed him with a UTI. This was surprising because we find out he doesn't have any dysuria, any flank pain, any overt hematuria. And so I wondered, is what the ER physicians actually saw a UA that had white cells and red blood cells on it. So I think thinking broadly about this positive UA and considering, well, what reasons could there be for there to be cells in his urine besides a standard UTI was an important clue early on in the case. Sterile pyuria, meaning white cells in the urine without a typical positive urine culture, can happen in a lot of different situations. But it also made me think early about processes that could give him white cells in the urine from interstitial nephritis, from allergic triggers, perhaps like the NSAIDs he's taking, uh, autoimmune conditions that may unfold, like sarcoid, or other infections that directly infect the interstitium, CMV, Legionella, leptospirosis, fall in those categories. I think Dr. Sherman's approach here is really worth reviewing.
2: Our patients have often seen multiple providers before we meet them, and we need to be keenly aware of when a diagnostic label just doesn't make sense. For instance, when Dr. Sherman hears about the presumptive UTI diagnosis, in the absence of any symptoms, her spidey senses immediately go off, and she starts thinking about other reasons why the patient may have had pyuria. She quickly hones in on a few discrete infections that could both explain the patient's nonspecific symptoms and potentially involve the kidney through interstitial nephritis. This is so important as the failure to set aside an incorrect diagnostic label can lead to the bias of diagnostic momentum, in which we accept a diagnosis without reevaluating the data for ourselves. This only further propagates misdiagnosis and creates delays in care. With repeated exposure to a particular chief complaint or set of symptoms, our sense of when a diagnostic label doesn't fit becomes further refined as Dr. Sherman exemplified in her interpretation of the patient's prior UTI diagnosis.
3: The other really interesting thing we get from his interaction with the healthcare system before the hospitalization is his treatment with doxycycline. This stood out to me for a couple reasons. One is it's a curious choice for a UTI. Doesn't quite fit the standard organisms we'd expect for him. And in practice, I feel like we often reach for doxy in more mysterious febrile illnesses, treating so called doxy deficient conditions, really meaning were the clinicians worried about a zoonotic or rickettsial infection early on? Actually, on a review of his
2: records, the peculiar choice in antibiotic was intended to treat for possible chlamydia urethritis. Interestingly though, Dr. Sherman uses this data point to consider whether they too were worried about certain quote unquote doxy deficient conditions that may already be on her differential. Were you considering any particular zoonotic or rickettsial infections? If so, what do you think about his response to an empiric trial of doxy?
3: Let's hear Dr. Sherman's take. The other interesting thing about the doxy is he didn't feel better on it. And when trying to diagnose a case, in a patient who has interacted with other healthcare providers earlier, how they respond to a treatment can give us some helpful diagnostic information. In this case, I wondered did he not feel better because the doxy wasn't appropriate, or was it not quite strong enough for what he had? I did wonder perhaps the medication itself did help, but his underlying condition flared in the setting of systemic therapy. And the particular thing to watch out for would be the systemic inflammatory response from antibiotics and spirochete-induced diseases, the Yerichs-Herzheimer reaction. I wonder if he didn't feel net better with the doxy. So his lack of response to the antibiotic, I think, could be interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, It still keeps our differential diagnosis pretty broad, but it does give us a little more information knowing how he did or did not respond to treatment.
2: Here, Dr. Sherman is using what's called the test of treatment by gauging the patient's response to a trial of doxycycline. In reality, we use the test of treatment all the time. For instance, have you ever started PPIs empirically for symptoms that sounded like GERD? As with any diagnostic test, though, there are important scenarios in which the test of treatment can yield either false positive or false negative results. A false positive can occur if the underlying disease process just spontaneously resolves. False negative results can occur if the treatment dose or duration are inadequate. Ideally, if you were concerned for a doxy-deficient condition, you could identify objective parameters to follow over time to help confirm whether you reached the right diagnosis. What do you think happened in this case? What would you monitor in this patient if you decided to start a trial of doxy? Let's get back to our case and hear Dr. Sherman's thoughts
3: on the social history. Social history, as expected, was very helpful. I immediately saw his occupation and um, had a tendency to sort of start to anchor on the facts. As a sanitation worker, he has human and animal waste exposures. Leptospirosis fits into the illness script of that with exposure, particularly to rodent uh, excrement and urine. But just because he works in sanitation doesn't mean he can't have any other disease. So I sort of quickly stepped in that direction and stepped away. Dr. Sherman is
2: taking a cautious approach to the patient's exposure history. It's an important data point, And if we treat it like a diagnostic test, it certainly increases her post-test probability of lepto. However, that doesn't mean the probability of other diagnoses on her differential have become so low that it's not worth investigating these other possibilities. If I were in Dr. Sherman's place, I can easily imagine myself getting overexcited about having potentially identified a zebra that could explain all my patients' symptoms. However, it's important to set aside these types of emotional responses and really consider, based on what I know right now, can I really say the probability of other diagnoses on my list has now become zero? Dr. Sherman is avoiding anchoring bias by keeping in mind that many other diagnoses remain plausible at this point and are worthy of further workup, despite this intriguing morsel of data. At this point, let's get to the physical exam and admission labs.
1: So on presentation to the hospital, the patient's afebrile and hemodynamically stable. He is athletic appearing, but he's diffusely jaundiced with obvious scleral and sublingual icterus. You notice scattered petechiae on the chest and back, without any other visible rashes or lesions. There are no lesions in his oropharynx, and there's no cervical lymphadenopathy. You don't appreciate any abnormalities on his heart or lung exams. His abdomen is soft and untender, and he doesn't have appreciable hepatosplenomegaly. His lower extremity strength, sensation, and reflexes are all within norms. His CBC is notable for a leukocytosis with a white count of 19.2, 58% neutrophils, and 5% bands. He's slightly anemic with a hemoglobin of 12.4, and he's significantly thrombocytopenic with a platelet count of 62,000. On his basic metabolic panel, his potassium is low at 3.3, and his BUN to creatinine is elevated at 73 over 1.6, respectively. This hepatic panel is notable for a total bilirubin of 21.2, a direct bilirubin of 16.8, an AST of 70, an ALT of 45, and an ALP of 132 with a GGT of 208.
2: Let's go ahead and take a break here. Consider pausing the episode and reevaluating your differential based on this new information before we hear Dr. Sherman's thoughts. Welcome back, guys. So just to review, we're trying to solve the case of a 34-year-old man who looks like he has an acute febrile multisystem illness. What did you think was going on? Here's our discussants' reaction to what you just heard.
3: Some of the labs were not surprising, and some were very surprising, and I think this was a pretty critical pivot point in the case. So for example, the leukocytosis right now is not surprising. It speaks to the systemic inflammation he's going through. The thrombocytopenia similarly could go with the infectious hypothesis if it's from uh, sepsis directly, the infection itself affecting the bone marrow, or a consumptive process like DIC or a thrombotic microangiopathy. The kidney injury um, in some ways isn't surprising given some of the hits that he's taken, the ibuprofen around the clock, the limited oral intake. But again, we do have a presumed pyuric UA from the prior hospital stay. So, more intrinsic renal injuries are possible as well to his prerenal state. Finally, though, the liver biochemical tests were really the twist and the big surprise. Um, when encountering liver tests in general, I stick to the approach of categorizing the pattern of the abnormality first and then building the differential for those abnormalities from there. So out of a hepatocellular versus cholestatic versus infiltrative pattern, which would be mostly AST-ALT elevations versus mostly alk ALKFAS elevations versus mostly an isolated ALKFAS, respectively, he just has a very clear cholestatic pattern driven by his hyperbilirubinemia with associated ALKFOS as well. The key approach here will be later on with diagnostics figuring out, is this from biliary obstruction, either within or outside the liver, or is there more of a cholestatic liver injury itself? But this was very surprising and I think makes us kind of go back to that original list and broaden things and consider infections that really have more of a direct liver effect as well.
2: In thinking about the patient's labs, Dr. Sherman is applying her diagnostic schema for abnormal LFTs. Diagnostic schemas are cognitive tools that provide a scaffold from which to break down more complex clinical problems. For instance, when you heard thrombocytopenia, did you immediately start subcategorizing diagnoses by decreased production, increased destruction, and sequestration? That's an example of a commonly used diagnostic schema you've likely heard in the past. Why is this useful? Well, it allows you to retrieve from memory well-organized lists of potential diagnoses to consider. They're also handy as a tool for thinking out loud to teach your clinical reasoning to others. We all start to develop diagnostic schemas early in training and refine them over time with repeated exposure to similar clinical scenarios. Here, Dr. Sherman is quickly able to focus in on a cholestatic pattern, leading her to consider obstructive pathologies, versus processes that cause direct injury to the bile ducts. All right, team, pause here and refine your problem representation before we hear Dr. Sherman's version.
3: With all of that said, we are treating a healthy young sanitation worker with an acute onset febrile syndrome with headaches, myalgias, cholestatic liver injury, thrombocytopenia, and an AKI with microscopic hematuria. So really a a multi-organ inflammatory state in which the clinical scenario still seems most compelling and most pressing to look for infection. And I would go back to the infection category being broken down even more thoroughly by bacteria, viral, et cetera, and sort of force myself at this point to commit to what organisms I'm most worried about. What do you think of Dr.
2: Sherman's problem representation? How did it compare to what you came up with? Consider pausing again here to put the finishing touches on your differential diagnosis before we get
3: to Dr. Sherman's final thoughts on the case. In the bacterial category, I think abscesses or bacteremia from staph strep at this point are possible. We'd really have to explain why the liver is getting hit so hard. But then as well as gram-negative infections with severe sepsis, salmonella potentially could be an explanation as well. Although the billies are probably a little too high to be explained by pure systemic sepsis alone, I still do worry about actual involvement of the liver. You know, I think viral hepatitis, my illness script really includes much more dramatic hepatocellular AST, ALT elevations. But... I'd want to keep those on the table, given how much hepatobiliary injury there is. I think flu, Epstein-Barr virus, CMV, and of course, checking for HIV, both as a primary driver of this, but to inform his immune status is an important. Finally, I think finishing with the category of atypical or specifically spirochete or rickettsial organisms, this is definitely important given what we found in the social history So thinking about disseminated syphilis as a possibility, perhaps scrub typhus. As far as I know in New York, urine typhus really isn't as a problem, but here in Houston where I practice, that would definitely be on the table for this serious illness. And then again, with potential animal waste exposure, leptospirosis could tie this all well together. It would have to be the very kind of severe syndrome of Wiles disease. Non-infectious, again, is still on there, the endocrinopathies could be possible, very severe thyrotoxicosis, adrenal insufficiency. And then in the autoimmune categories, I want to tie the hepatobiliary disease in well. So thinking about an unexpected presentation of sclerosing cholangitis, autoimmune hepatitis. But again, the time course, the fact that AST and ALT aren't that high just don't fit very well.
2: I really like how Dr. Sherman organized her differential. She had honed in on infection early, but broke down discrete diagnoses further by bacterial, viral, and atypical infectious categories. Finally, she made sure to include non-infectious processes as well that could still be at play here. Instead of just listing off discrete diagnoses, subcategorizing by microbiological class allowed her to be very systematic and comprehensive in how she approached the case. Consider pausing and writing down what additional workup you would order at this point before we reveal what happened next. Ultimately, blood and urine cultures remained without growth. HIV antibody testing and viral load were both negative. Hep A, Hep B, and Hep E serologies were non-revealing. Serologies for EBV and CMV revealed negative IgMs with positive IgGs consistent with prior exposure, with negative viral loads for both organisms. Lyme serologies were negative. Anaplasma Lichia smear was negative, as were anaplasma serologies. Abdominal ultrasound and MRCP were both negative for intra- or extrahepatic biliary dilation, though MRCP did show prominent abdominal and retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy. The patient was empirically restarted on doxycycline given the high clinical suspicion for leptospirosis. His leukocytosis, thrombocytopenia, AKI, and hyperbilirubinemia all improved on doxycycline, And ultimately, leptospirosis IGN returned to positive after the patient had already been discharged from the hospital. When I saw this patient for the first time, my problem representation included a previously healthy young man who worked in sanitation with resolved fever, presenting with headache and myalgias, and prominent lab abnormalities including leukocytosis, thrombocytopenia, AKI, and profound hyperbilirubinemia. I was considering anaplasma lichia, EBV, CMV, and rickettsial infections, but what really didn't fit for me was the extremely high T-billy, which just didn't match with my illness scripts for these diagnoses. Lepto was just not on my radar, but I had a feeling there was something that I was missing. After a few hours of independent reading— I walked next door to run the case by some colleagues who brought up the possibility of leptospirosis. Notably, I later learned Lepto actually migrates between hepatocytes, detaching intercellular junctions and disrupting bile canaliculi, which can cause the degree of hyperbilirubinemia that was seen in this case. I asked
3: Dr. Sherman how she deals with similar diagnostic dilemmas. And honestly, there's, that's the fun of medicine—is we just we won't see things a lot of the time. Wild syndrome in particular, I'll say I've never seen it. Maybe our rats are cleaner here in Houston. Actually, this is something I have seen presented as conferences as kind of a, just a diagnostic challenge. So that's how I, I think getting exposure, even when you don't see cases clinically, it's just listening to the cases, talking with colleagues and reading. But back to the reality of being in the moment, feeling like you're missing something, I think sort of zooming out and coming up with the most kind of condensed problem lists possible, and then just using the resources you have to see what hits come up for those combinations.
2: I think Dr. Sherman's on the right track.
3: In performing a cognitive autopsy,
2: to better understand how my own cognitive errors played a role in the case, I should have reached out for help earlier. I think as clinicians, we can feel all this pressure to have the answers in every clinical scenario. This is just unrealistic given the complexity of medical care that we face today. Our colleagues are an amazing resource that in this case led me to the ultimate diagnosis. I also probably underutilized the simple Google search. In preparing for this episode, I entered my problem representation in Dr. Google, and lo and behold, leptospirosis is the first thing that comes up. So for me, letting go of the expectation that I can figure it all out myself and utilizing the ample resources around me were some important takeaways. summarize our take-home points for today. When working up a patient who has had prior contact with the healthcare system, be attuned to when diagnostic labels don't fit and require re-evaluation to avoid the bias of diagnostic momentum. Recognize when you're using the test of treatment as a diagnostic test and understand that both false positive and false negative results can occur in the situations we discussed earlier in the episode. Be deliberate about developing, refining, and teaching your diagnostic schemas. They can save us a lot of mental energy in the clinically complex setting in which we practice medicine. Finally, after having some time to decompress after a challenging or difficult case, think about doing a cognitive autopsy to crystallize how you would change your approach next time around. That's all for now, folks. I wanna thank our guest, Dr. Stephanie Sherman. Thank you to Dr. Shreya Trivedi, John Wong, and Cindy Fang for weighing in on this episode, along with Michael Shen, Amy Wu, and our audio editors, Richard Chen and Harit Shah. As always, an honorable mention to our fellow podcaster, Dr. Stephen Liu. And hoop beat listeners,
0: I just want to reassure you La Zhang and I aren't actually retiring. We'll be back next episode.
1: Yeah, of course we'll be. We like doing this too much. But we just know that there are more people like Shira out there among you. You're probably full of cases or ideas or maybe completely different perspectives on how to think or teach or learn about clinical reasoning. So we would love to hear your thoughts. Send us an email at coreiampodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter at at coreimpodcast.
0: Opinions expressed in the podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. With Core IM, I'm Cindy Fain.
1: I'm
3: John
2: Huang. And I'm Shira Sachs. I'll see you guys next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward.